1: Hi and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for 4 minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, January thirty-first, twenty-twenty-two. This is episode number two hundred and five. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book "What's Growing in Grandma's Garden" and Cannabis's favorite grandma, A.K.A. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 25,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. Today, we're talking about the world's first intrinsically seedless cannabis. Also, those hardest hit in the drug war not getting equity, the end of provisional cannabis licenses in California, and what that means, New Jersey wants to get it right, CBD and COVID, Maine and magic mushrooms, banking reform, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity, Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Give it up for co-producer Priscilla Agoncillo. She's a Canamamipreneur, multi-award winning influencer, CEO of the award winning Original Breeders League, and a smoking superhero. She's known for keeping elected officials accountable and having some really good weed. Priscilla, what have you got for us today?
2: Thanks so much, Susan. Good morning, everyone. Uh, So my article is Dark Heart announces the world's first intrinsically seedless cannabis for commercial producers. Dark Heart Industries today announced the world's first seedless triploid cannabis for commercial growers. Uh, Just so you know, diploid and triploid cultivars have existed in the hemp space for at least the last three years. So not necessarily the first. Anyway, Dark Heart's pistol guard technology produces triploid cannabis seeds and clones that essentially cannot produce seed even when directly exposed to pollen. Um, Dan Grace, founder and CEO of Darkrock Industries, says the ability to grow THC-rich cannabis from sterile triploid seeds and clones that are guaranteed to produce virtually seedless plants is a huge win for cultivators. Pollen-proof cannabis and the advantages it offers will move cannabis production from artisanal cultivation to large-scale agriculture. The development of triploid seedless varieties has been a huge step forward in many commercial crops such as watermelon and apples. This trait's introduction in cannabis will allow higher yields, reduce costs, and allegedly improve aromatic and chemical qualities of the crop. At first, when I saw these seeds hit the market, they were having issues with the yield stability, so maybe it's advanced since then. Uh, but anyway, the presence of seeds in cannabis plants just for cultivation purposes decreases the density of cannabinoids and terpenes, leading to low THC production, loss of yield, and diminished bag appeal because the plant is directing energy towards making seed. So this was uh, this is an issue for cultivators. In the 70s, however, cannabis farmers produced the first breakthrough when they introduced cannabis sensimia in Spanish that means without seeds, by physically isolating female plants from the presence of any pollen-producing males. In the 90s, breeders then started producing feminized seeds, which produces only female plants. However, these plants are still susceptible to being pollinated. So, uh, triploid seed-based plants are practically incapable of setting seed, even when directly exposed to male pollen. This tech hopefully will address cross-pollination issues for outdoor and greenhouse operators. So, addressing those long-time issues is great and all, but the real question is, what is a weed like? Uh, this is Priscilla reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What is the weed like? <laughs> That's what I wanted to know. Well, we're, we're about to even- see because I, I, I mean, anything <laughs> commercially grown at like mm-hmm. the scale of corn is obviously going to be boof. Um, but, you know, I'm very curious to see how, you know, the the product actually, the final product
3: actually comes out. GMO weed is now officially
2: here. <laughs> exactly,
1: and not the good GMO. Anyone in the audience, if you're uh, involved in this in any way, would love to uh, hear from you.
4: I can't believe I say I'm agreeing with Jason, but I'm 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 concerned and wonder will it affect other other crops, including cannabis. I'm
5: with Jason too. I
4: think I want my cannabis like i want my fruit with seeds i don't
6: know if you guys have noticed this but like with uh, seedless watermelons everywhere and a lot of these seedless fruits and vegetables i feel like some of the flavor is gone so i'm curious to see if this is what we'll see in this without other like different flavonoids or or if there's other changes in it overall
1: you know what that brings up a good point i wonder if they're going to enter any of the bud in the california state fair because it's it's based on just the, the profiles, right? right. That's, huh.
2: and, and, and
7: There's I mean, a mids Liz, category. You're totally
2: right. Go ahead, Jason.
7: There's a mids category from the state fair.
2: The whole thing is mids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to be
5: the booth category. <laughs> Heidi, did you want to weigh in? Good morning, everyone. Yes, I would. Actually, I'm very familiar with this. Um, and with dark heart. What they are doing is something that actually happens in nature. There's not a GMO factor here. It's not CRISPR. There's no injection of any other uh, chromosomes. It's a diploid and a triploid. What they've done is they've bred uh, triploid seed, and it doesn't change the profile whatsoever, they're all focused on tr- their terpenes. They're also going to provide um, clones, if that's what farmers want. Um, and they're starting off right now with seed trials with their, um, some of their key growers, and they'll have the seed available next year. And so this really just changes the game from, you know, even if you're going to be growing a few plants, if you're going to be growing you know, many, many plants. And they're all about the terpene profiles. They're all about producing beautiful cannabis and helping their people do so.
1: Thanks. That's Bye. good. That's good to hear. Thank you, Heidi. Uh, Jessica, we're at time. So,
8: ten seconds. So yes, I just really had a couple of things to say about like bananas. They really haven't changed much about bananas either, genetically modified. But they don't taste like real bananas anymore. Bananas are not supposed to be that sweet. Also, the clone thing—that was a question I had. However, I know from growing clones that. The more clones you take, the more watered down the genetics is. So, is that something that's going to be happening continuously? That we're just watering down the genetics? How do you get new? How
1: do you how do you fix that part? This is all new stuff to me. So um, maybe we will have to do a room on this um, because it's a very interesting topic seedless seeds. Um, Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. Rico, what's your headline today?
7: Good morning, Susan. My headline is uh, coming out of LA Times, California Promise, social equity, after pot legalization. Um, those hit hardest feel betrayed. Uh, keep an eye out for Kika Keith. She might be um, stepping into the room with us to join the conversation. All right, so getting into the cannabis industry is like buying a luxury automobile. You can buy sticker price plus markup for all the bells and whistles of that hot new sexy car, but you're going to lose about 30% value driving that shit off the lot. Fifty years, le- uh, excuse me, five years later, you've lost between 50 and 70 percent of that original investment. Several maintenance requirements for calls, um, equipment failures have occurred over that time period, and your warranties just lapsed. What do you do? Continue to pay crazy prices for maintenance and upkeep out of pocket just to stay fly? Uh, sure, there's new models out with newer features, but you'll rip it. your whip is fresh as fuck. But you know it's going to break you. You don't know if you'll be able to keep up with all the payments on top of specialized maintenance. Damn, that smart money would have bought that shit certified pre-owned. Better warranty, most recalls and gremlins already taken care of. And you let somebody else unwisely take that massive financial hit on the front end. You make out like a bandit. Nobody's ever going to question the fact that you bought that brand new, new to you at least, Benz for pennies on the dollar. See where I'm going with this? Early 2019, a year after California's Prop, 65, uh, Prop 64 allowed legal adult use sales, politicians and activists proclaimed those who grew up in communities disproportionately criminalized by the war on drugs would now be allowed to participate and profit off legal cannabis as tax-paying entrepreneurs. We're now five years in. Many cities and counties have yet to adopt social equity programs in places that have have been beleaguered by lack of funding, abruptly changing regulatory requirements, and delayed application processing. For the article, LA Times review of the state data found uh, equity applicants represented a small fraction, less than 8% of all people granted cannabis licenses through the end of 2020 in several of the state's largest jurisdictions. So far, the game has been playing out as many early critics, including myself, predicted. Existing medical shops and established chain retailers, many MSOs are winning by a wide margin. They've got a ton more businesses, um, they got a ton more experience, uh, political money in the game and the seemingly endless capital necessary to survive the first few years of industry depreciation. I guess one positive thing is city leaders and officials in charge of of those programs are now acknowledging that the programs have struggled. The process designed uh, to right the past wrongs has made their lives significantly tougher, killed off any kind of stability emptied out life savings and maxed out credit cards and jeopardized homes and properties along the way. Social equity is such a great opportunity though, right? Biggest problem in LA and many other areas was applicants were forced to secure properly zoned property before applying for licenses. Many paid tens of thousands a month for empty buildings, not yet cleared by the city to operate. Years Governor Jerry Brown in 2018 passed the California Cannabis Equity Act, a measure designed to provide for those most harmed by cannabis prohibition, uh, the assistance to enter the multi-billion-dollar cannabis industry as entrepreneurs or as employees with high-quality, well-paying jobs. According to L.A. Times data reported to state lawmakers, 16 cities and counties issued licenses to 203 equity applicants through December 2020. During the same period, 2,355 non-equity applicants got theirs. Many went into pre-existing, many went to pre-existing medical dispensaries. Some jurisdictions had not issued a single equity license. Up in the Emerald Triangle, Mendo County, they received $3 million for equity. And um, according to the California cannabis industry, no applicant had met any of the el- eligibility criteria. For the article in Oakland, which created the nation's first equity program more than four years ago, 63% said the gross receipts of their businesses the previous le- year had been less than $50,000. The city has begun sending delinquent notices to collect on unpaid loans. All right. So I reached out to, uh, so this article did a great job highlighting the individual stories of three awesome women who've gone through LA's program, Ingrid Archie, Kika Keith, Crystal Ryan, to, and uh, with various results. I reached out to all, uh, to two of the three, uh, two that I know personally, Ingrid Archie and uh, Kika Keith. Keith, if you're in here, raise your hand. If not, maybe she can pop in later. Um, unfortunately, they were not available for comment and this morning. And um, I hope that all three of them are able to turn things around for their communities and their families. Uh, but the way today's CPO auto loan market is going, I don't know if they'll ever get approved by any of these so-called safe banking loans, even if they were available. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad in these L.A. streets, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News NewsHour. Um, I just want my people to get a, a chance to operate as they were promised. Back to you, Susan and Priscilla.
2: Wow, really great article. Thank you for framing that, Rico. That's some bullshit. And, uh, you know, we need to just hold our, our, our representatives accountable.
4: Yeah, so sad and heartbreaking.
1: Gavin Newsom has some, wor- <clears throat> some real work to do. You know, the, California is not leading the cannabis industry. And, and it, that was, you know, how we got elected. And it's just not working.
3: California trap market is leading the industry, though Susan.
1: Right, exactly.
3: And and, and a lot. Of, sorry, my baby's crying. And a lot of those people who are um, who
7: were in the social equity program, they had to go back to the trap because they're not making any money. They're going broke. Like, why the fuck would you wait three years, going on four years now, and you still don't have a license? You've been paying for property, ten, twenty thousand dollars a month for something that you don't even have yet. What's the fucking point?
2: terrible absolutely terrible well we are at time on that uh that's such a such an important thing for us in the industry to always keep at the forefront of our minds um and up next we have mr jason beck Uh, jason is the kaiser soze of cannabis and he is our highest republican he is also the longest continuous cannabis retailer in the history of the united states jason what do you have for us
3: oh good morning thank you so much priscilla hope everyone is having a fantastic monday because i'll tell you what everyone in new jersey where my story is out of is going to be having a really shitty day after they hear this news murphy that's in governor murphy of new jersey says he'd rather be right than fast as new jersey as new jersey may delay adult use weed sales. Governor Phil Murphy, who successfully pushed to legalize cannabis for recreational use, said he wasn't concerned that the state may not meet a February 22nd deadline for selling weed to the public. In a quote, he says, "I'd rather get it right than get it fast," Murphy told a New Jersey Advanced Media on Sunday. "They're doing a really good job. They want to do a good job. That's that that's different and better." Than any other state that's ever done it, in particular as it relates to addressing inequities, which has been a central theme of mine. Well, judging off of Rico's last article, we all know that is totally fake news. And uh, Murphy used his uh, State of the State and his second inaugural address this month to tout the positive impact on the economy and jobs that he said he believed the state's legal cannabis industry would have. Well, guess what, Governor Murphy? If you don't initiate it, you're never going to have it. But he said he wasn't concerned with the possibility possible delay. Jeff Brown, executive director of the state's Cannabis Regulatory Commission, told New Jersey Cannabis Insider last week that New Jersey may not meet its self-imposed deadline for selling adult-use cannabis. We all want it sooner th- sooner than later, but let's make sure it's right, Murphy said. That, to me, is the most important. It's going to be an industry that's going to be around 50, 100, 200 years from now, so let's get it right. Well, I'll tell you what, Governor Murphy, you need to get off the pot or take a shit and fucking get this program off to, off to the races because everyone's talking about New Jersey, but ain't nobody seeing no action in New Jersey. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis Hour.
1: Jason, you're the one that's always saying we, it's not when, but how.
3: I didn't create this deadline. They created the deadline for themselves. So this is a manufactured okay. crisis, Susan.
1: So okay, well, yeah, they they're also talking about no home cultivation. So, uh fuck that.
3: Doesn't that make you want to move to New Jersey, Susan?
1: No, that's a line in the sand. They cannot do that. That that would be terrible.
3: I mean, how many people in New Jersey really have somewhere where they could in in home cultivate in the first place?
1: But do you know what the state's motto is?
9: It's a, it's, a garden
3: it's the Garden State. Yeah, it's the Garden State.
9: Yes, the Garden State. I have a quick question. Have they indicated at all when they think they will be ready.
3: There was no indication of this article as to when they would be ready. Governor Murphy just keeps on passing the ball off saying we want to get it right as opposed to get it in early, which tells me which tells me he doesn't Stalling. have a fucking clue as to what to do.
9: Yeah, I guess that means no time soon. Uh, maybe they'd be lucky to do something by the end of the
7: year. Maybe. It's a bunch of bullshit tactics. They're waiting for the big money to come in so they can pay everybody's bills. Just keep it buck.
1: They're waiting for their relatives to get
9: in.
7: Gotta love
3: America.
9: When did when did New Jersey officially finally happen? Was it
3: technically it hasn't officially happened because they don't have a dollar Well, you know
10: what
9: I mean. When did it actually get
10: voted on? Uh, New Jersey voted on it what um, last at the last election or the election That's before? What I thought. Yeah, they've been rolling out the um, applications. I've been doing a lot of them and writing them. So I think what they're concerned about the home grow is that it quote-unquote feeds the, you know, traditional market or underground market, and they're just afraid that it's going to get out of hand. Yes, there is a lot of places to grow things in New Jersey. Most of it's rural, other than the part that's by New York, and even that's pretty uh, suburban.
3: I'm just going to say six plants at a home grow does not cultivate the illicit market.
10: Yeah, well, that's... And You're not a regulator.
3: And, 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 Anna, that, that's totally ridiculous, and it doesn't make any sense at all in, in the world. If you understood cultivation, you would know that you're going to need thousands of lights if you want to be fueling the illicit market, not 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 one light with six plants. That's just totally ridiculous. Well,
10: and I'm sorry. Okay, in the garden state, and people <laughs> grow things outdoors in their backyard, and they're currently doing it now.
9: I was asking about the timeline simply because what we've seen in the past is that it generally takes a market to get up and running two years uh, from signing it into law to actually getting regs passed, getting applicants approved and stuff. So uh, Jason is correct. They put this stupid deadline on themselves.
10: New New Jersey has been rolling it out pretty quick compared to other states as far as I've seen. And they've been very good as far as having a lot of informational sessions, which I think ho- helps uh, smaller and more inexperienced people to find their place in the market. And among the people that I'm working with, I find that there's a lot more uh, diverse applicants. So um, I think they got some things right. I think the home grow is a very important issue that the whole Northeast is struggling with. I think New York doesn't allow home grow either. So they're just starting to roll that out. So I think New York is the big gorilla in the room. And so New Jersey they do allow is going to follow.
3: Yeah, New, New yeah, York they allows for home grow, Anna.
10: They just started. But the,
2: it was one of the first laws that they passed there for New York. They're allowing for home grow. So that's a,
10: at least a good thing.
3: All right. Even though the power grid can even support home grow.
10: God, the sun supports so are, home grow. Yeah, We're we at the, the, the end of
7: the rope. We're at the that's end. No the one smokes outdoor, Anna.
10: Uh, Nanogram does, <laughs> except for a lot of people I know. Yeah, yes.
7: All right, let's, 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 let's move on. Let's move on, please. All right, so uh, uh, on to the next story. She's an entertainment attorney, cannabis and psychedelics advocate, and known in certain circles as the Princess of Pot. Up next, we've got the star of the Shall We Talk podcast, Shalina Panu. What news shall we talk upon this beautiful Monday morning, Shalina?
11: Thank you, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Maine is up next on the psilocybin train. Tomorrow, Maine lawmakers will hold a public hearing to discuss the Maine Psilocybin Services Act, which was presented by a Democratic senator of the state. The bill is similar to the one established in Oregon, which focuses on psilocybin treatments called administration sessions. Further, this bill would legalize the production of psilocybin, but only to those who hold applicable licenses. The Department of Health and Human Services, which w- who will oversee this program, will establish a 19-member advisory board in hopes to keep up to date with evolving research and to issue program recommendations to the DHHS. The psilocybin treatment would be administered only under two licensed facilitators. What's interesting to note here is that in these sessions, patients will have to attend a participation session where they will clearly define their goals and expectations that they hope to receive from these treatments. Additionally, they will be offered two implementation sessions in assisting with processing and integrating what they have learned into their actual lives the DHHS will set limits on how much psilocybin concentration can be produced in a single dose as well as the number of doses per package. Also, it seems from the bill that the psilocybin would be allowed to be made in a variety of ways such as whole mushrooms or psilocybin pills. Although Maine is trying to somewhat mimic their current medical cannabis laws, the bummer here is that patients will not be able to purchase psilocybin for at-home use outside of these facilities. Additionally, the bill discusses a tracking system, which would be implemented at licensed service centers to track and limit the amount of psilocybin these licensed centers can possess. What do you think about Maine's proposed psilocybin bill? My name is Shlena and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
4: I'm happy for Maine, but my question is, are is mushrooms going to get legalized before cannabis?
1: Yes.
7: I say yes. Should we take a poll, Susan?
1: Let's do a poll. Raise your hands if you think psilocybin will be legal federally before cannabis
3: monday not a chance monday morning cold
11: physician assisted wise
1: yeah in whatever way shape or form you know uh raise your hands let's see we've got 123 people in the room and we've got 13 15 hands raised so yeah
3: those are 15 wrong answers right there
2: <laughs> i hope i hope Jeez. they're right
3: <laughs> be nice on a
12: monday
2: Microdose Monday. Well, it's just a track that psychedelics is taking. They're taking you know the scientific and the entire academia route. So they are moving pretty damn fast and uh, we're just seeing it happen. I, I don't know, but uh, as I was going through the
1: headlines this morning, I would say I, I went through 12 pages on Google of cannabis headlines and i would say a good 30% of them were about raids and busts and
2: you know prohibition is going strong wonderful well up next we have our very own fiery redhead she is our insider in washington and founder of Panoptic Strategies. Gretchen, what do
9: you have for us today? Uh, Good afternoon, Priscilla. Uh, My headline looks at everybody's favorite topping, safe banking. Woo-hoo! Congressman files new marijuana banking reform amendment to large-scale House bill. Uh, This is coming out of Marijuana Moment. The House sponsor of a bill to protect banks that work with state legal marijuana businesses announced on Friday that he is seeking to attach an amendment containing the reform to a broader bill Dealing with the research and innovation in the tech and manufacturing sectors. Representative Ed Perlmutter, sponsor of the Safe Banking Act, has expressed interest in finding another vehicle to pursue his proposal after it was stripped from a separate defense bill late last year. The Congressman's legislation has cleared the House in five forms at this point, only to stall in the Senate. His latest attempt to get the reform enacted is by filing an amendment with the Safe Banking Language to the American Pizza. Act which does not deal specifically with cannabis issues as drafted, but was introduced in the House this week. Uh, He said, Cannabis-related businesses, big and small, and their employees are in desperate need of access to the banking system and access to capital in order to operate in any efficient, safe manner and compete in the growing global cannabis marketplace. The Safe Banking Act is the best opportunity to enact some type of federal cannabis reform this year and will serve as the first of many steps to help ensure cannabis businesses are treated the same as any other legal, legitimate business. I will continue to pursue every possible avenue to get safe banking over the finish line and signed into law. It remains to be seen whether the America Competes Act will serve as a more effective vehicle for the cannabis banking bill than the NDAA, where the language was successfully attached on the House side, but later removed amid bicameral negotiation, per- Perlmutter said at that time that the Senate leadership, which is working on comprehensive le- legalization legislation, was to blame for the decision to remove his amendment from the proposal. The new Safe Banking Act amendment will still need to be made in order by the House Rules Committee in order to be formally be considered on the House floor when the body takes up the Research and Innovation Package. The deadline to file amendments was Friday, and the panel is set to take them up starting tomorrow. Even some Republicans are scratching their heads about why Democrats have so far failed to pass the modest banking reform, with majorities in both chambers in control of the White House. For example, Representative Rand Paul criticized his Democratic colleagues over the issue last month. In the interim, federal financial regulator regulator Rodney Hood A board member and former chairman of the Federal National Credit Union Administration recently said that marijuana legalization is not a question of if, but when. And he's again offering advice on how to navigate the federal-state conflict that has left so many banks reluctant to work with cannabis businesses. Um, I think what'll be interesting, I think he'll get it attached. Nancy Pelosi's on board with moving safe banking however he wants. Um, It'll be interesting to see whether or not Schumer goes ahead and kills it again. Um, if he does, I would say, uh, you need to vote Schumer out. The man pretends to care about cannabis, but obviously really doesn't give a damn. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour.
3: Well, Gretchen, you also forget that all, all Earl, uh, Congressman Earl Perlmutter is really doing is giving, uh, Senator Cory Booker another st- chance to grandstand on this issue.
9: Well, the word that I hear is that Cory Booker has agreed to back down from his stance. And at some point they will, let's say, go through, um, My I'm hearing that it probably wouldn't happen till the lame duck, but we'll see if it stays attached to this bill.
1: How many times has Cory Booker flipped on this
7: Pass safe banking? (laughs) Cory Booker is a dolphin.
9: I, I, I like Cory Booker. I think his heart is in the right place. I genuinely think he cares. I think he did not expect the blowback that he got after. His last statements on safe banking.
7: I mean, a shout out to to, to my story uh, from today. You pass safe banking, you're going to have even more inequity in this industry. And and that's why it's being stalled up by Democrats. And I'm usually not one to um, even give Democrats a lot of props because they've fucked over the black community for the last 30 years. But that's another story for another day. Um, This is some bullshit. And they need to Get the communities right and make sure people of color are disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. They need to get theirs first. Chuck (laughs) Schumer
9: does not care at all about helping minorities.
5: I didn't say he He, does.
9: He cares about getting his own legislation passed. And to pretend that they're not passing safe banking because they care about minorities is bullshit.
3: Agree. Rico, thirty years, thirty years. I mean, I think you should I- increase that number. I mean, after all, Democrats were the Dixiecrats, which were the South. I mean, the backlash
7: or the whatever happened like after Ronald Reagan fucked over our communities, like we've been hurting since. And we've pledged allegiance to the Democratic Party. It's not really helped us. Hashtag walk away. Burn it down.
1: Burn it down, do it right, or wait. That's that's what I say. We are going to relight the room.
0: You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.
10: The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speakers, State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice. And the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers.
12: Viewer discretion advised.
1: Let's keep smoking the news.
7: All right. So, hold on one second. Sorry, y'all. All right. So, so, up next, she's well known for bringing that drama-free data that we love oh so much here at State of Cannabis News Hour, and is also a cannabis educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara. Liz Rogan, what you got in that news pipe for us this morning?
6: Thank you, Rico. Happy Monday, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to join us. My story comes from The Daily Beast. Um, This is a kind of uh, slightly biased uh, article here, but I'm trying to pull in as much information as I can from other articles that it cites. So it comes from The Daily Beast by Emma... Sorry if I butchered your name, Emma. The headline reads, we're ignoring what CBD could do for COVID at our own peril, and the data doesn't lie. So from the outset of the pandemic, there was a lot of hope that cannabis compounds have a role to play in this pandemic, from treating COVID directly to dealing with the pandemic's emotional side effects. And we are already seeing a lot of this potential research teased out in a flourish of new scientific research. So new peer-reviewed research Two weeks ago, came out from Canada. Some other research just was published last week suggesting that CBD can help prevent the novel coronavirus from replicating in human cells, reducing the chance of a full-blown infection. Another arm of the study also found that real-world patients who are prescribed CBD experience lower rates of COVID-19. And this does highlight the need for uh, clinical trials to rigorously pr- probe whether it could be used as an additional therapeutic to prevent or slow down breakthrough COVID. The good news too is that there's other trials already in the works at the moment. There are seven clinical trials registered with clinicaltrials.gov that are looking at CBD in connection with COVID-19, and they're looking at several aspects. Some studies are focusing on acute COVID-19, and that's the period of time when you have symptoms, other experiencing investigating how CBD could treat the extant effects of COVID-19 experienced well after the infection already cleared out of the body, also known as long COVID. And a third vein of research is looking into whether CBD can help people grappling with the emotional burnout caused by the pandemic. So looking at the initial or acute, uh, Kripa is a psychiatrist at uh, in the, uh, from the University of Sao Paulo, and they conducted a tr- clinical trial on CBD and acute COVID infection during Brazil's winter 2020 COVID-19 wave. <clears throat> Their study followed 91 patients um, with mild to moderate COVID uh, for 28 days. Some got CBD, some got a placebo. Unfortunately, the study found that CBD had no real effect on the disease, but <clears throat> excuse me, CRIPA has been following these patients for a year, and the results have still not changed. So he said, we had great expectations for the acute uh, phase trials, but we didn't see that. That said, this line of inquiry is far from dead. Um, They pointed out that patients tolerated CBD well, which suggests it's safe to keep these studies going. And the patients in those studies got low doses of CBD. So they were saying there's a window of opportunity here to go up and use a much higher dose of CBD in the patient population to determine if it might have an effect on COVID symptomology. Looking at CBD for the long haul, CRIPA has pivoted to investigating CBD's effect on COVID, uh, long COVID. So in which patients are debilitated for several months by symptoms like headaches, uh, severe fatigue, difficulty concentrating, shortness of breath. And he's looking at MRI scans on three groups, people who are treated with CBD and diagnosed with COVID from the early study he had, a placebo group of people who had COVID but didn't get CBD, and a third group of people who never tested positive for COVID. His rationale is that CBD should Sorry, could have some protective effects when it comes to anxiety and depression, common problems in long COVID patients, which he's also seen and is looking at neuro, he has seen the neuroprotective effects in Parkinson's patients and hoping this may help alleviate brain fog associated with long COVID. Um, a, no, a nonprofit group called Drug Science UK, which is out of Imperial College London, um, is starting a clinic, is in the early stages of a clinical trial that will give 30 long COVID patients a uh, CBD dominant formulation of medical cannabis called Medica um, which is uh, to see how long they see how well they tolerate the drug from February through June. And um, the group is undertaking this study because long COVID patients experience symptoms like pain, anxiety, sleeplessness, high blood pressure. And these symptoms are, have seen to be managed in, um, sorry, these symptoms which have also been seen in conditions managed with medical cannabis. So all this research is still in its early stages. Crippa uh, is in the middle of analyzing his data. And the trial run by Drug Sciences UK is is only just starting, so from physical to mental, the bi- biggest potential seems to be helping us deal with the f- pandemic's psychological toll. Anxiety is one area where CBD has the strongest potential. Um, they have shown that CBD can block block formulation of fear related memories in rats because it interacts with serotonin signaling pathways. So serotonin is really important for anxiety and mood disorders, and um, most of the major drugs that treat these disorders target the serotonin system, so it's promising CBD will uh, will do this. So, anyway, as you can see, we're close to the end, but we're looking to see if um, there's more potential. I know we all hope that plant medicine can help us get out of this pandemic. So, this is Liz Rogan for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you.
1: Long COVID Please. scares me the most of any any part of it. Uh, I hope that this works. My daughter has long COVID and it, the exhaustion hits her like a brick wall.
4: And that that um, Brazil study, uh, Liz, I'm looking at it now. It looks like they used a CBD isolate, that 300 milligram dose. It, they probably would get better results if they use the full spectrum product. It's just my two cents.
3: Liz, did you, did you say that it, it stops fear? Cannabis stops
6: fear? Allegedly.
3: That is amazing. Everyone should smoke more weed because fear is the number one uh, emotion that people uh, react on.
2: Stress is the number one killer.
7: Republicans know fear sells. You know, Democrats,
3: Democrats know fear sells.
1: Politicians well, know fear sells. News stations <laughs> know that, new, that fear sells.
7: Data shows
1: Churches.
6: fear sells. Churches. I love fear. Fear is always the best. That's, my pl- that's what I like to do.
3: I'm afraid. Well, when you're
6: shopping, to, when you're shopping for those anti-fear pills, uh, they do caution that you don't buy it at a CBD store because that is the name, not the same things that are given to people in clinical trials.
3: And MDMA is is legal. I mean, I mean, would you buy anything in a CBD store?
6: Absolutely not. But just saying, want to put it out there. <laughs>
2: Well, we are at time on that. Thank you so much for bringing up that article, Liz. And up next, we have Dr. Felicia. Uh, Dr. Felicia is one of my favorite medical experts. Um, She is also uh, the CEO of Plants for Life and a dual board certified physician helping people understand how much power they have uh, over their health while using cannabis as medicine. Dr. Felicia, what do you have for us today?
4: Thank you so much, Priscilla. Happy Monday, everyone. My headline comes from the Mashan Institute for Minimally Invasive Surgery. The title is JAMA publishes largest study to date on marijuana use in pregnancy. Dr. Mashan states that with the new data that has come out of the last five years, there's really not any doubt at this point that smoking marijuana during pregnancy is associated with preterm births, lower birth weight, and more admissions to the neonatal ICU. This data will force some difficult decisions for pregnant women dependent on marijuana for treatment of serious medical conditions like anxiety and chronic pain. Spoiler alert, there is no new data here. This new study is a meta-analysis rehashing 16 previous retrospective cohort studies dated from 1983 to 2020, involving a little over 59,000 patients, so they have the numbers. Uh, They were looking for 11 adverse outcomes in the cannabis-exposed babies versus the controls, but were only able to come up with seven. Um, Birth weight less than 2,500 grams, small for gestational age, increased preterm delivery, low birth weight, uh, increased NICU admissions, low APGAR score at one minute, and decreased infant head circumference. They stated several times in the study that the results were heterogeneous, which means that some people uh, found no connection between cannabis and a bad outcome, and others did. Most of the studies were self-report. No product was analyzed. Most studies only documented one exposure, which was typically at delivery with a positive urine drug test. Most of the studies, as in 75%, did not include levels of exposure, frequency, nor dosage. Retrospective chart reviews do not provide the same level of evidence as randomized placebo-controlled trials. They did try to control for alcohol, tobacco, and benzodiazepines. However, there was no information included in this latest analysis regarding adverse childhood experiences, history of sexual trauma, maternal stress, and by the way, 60% of pregnant women are concerned about the financial aspects of having a baby, uh, their, their maternity care, as well as the delivery. Um, they did not talk about mood disorders or domestic violence. It's time to stop rehashing old data that does not account for these other important exposure a pregnant woman may be facing. These maternal stressors can also adversely impact fetal anatomy, physiology, and neurobehavioral development. We need meaningful research by following pregnant women prospectively, preferably in a legal state where they have access to clean, safe product, documenting what they're going through while they're, while they're using it, why, why are they using it, what product is being used, and how. This is Dr. Felicia Dawson reporting for the State of Cannabis Hour.
2: Thank you for breaking down the study because you know when when uh, they publish you know some of these studies, um, as we don't really understand exactly what they're trying to promote, so we rely on what the news article says, um, what the what the interpretation of it, and how it's skewed um, in the media. So thank you for breaking it down, Dr. Felicia.
4: And uh, my pleasure. And and un- unfortunately, a lot of physicians will just read the conclusion and not really dig deeper. And so this is why this continues to go forward. I had an opportunity to ask the director of the NIH's National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health a question during a panel discussion at a medical conference last year. And I asked, if it's ethical for us to research COVID vaccines in pregnant women, how is it unethical to do research on cannabis in pregnancy when it's been used safely for thousands of years by women and their caregivers? To my astonishment, he answered, it's time for all the stakeholders to gather and see if this is something we can do. And I was shocked.
1: Yay, Dr. Felicia. Mary, did you want to weigh in before we move on?
8: Yeah, I think this is really interesting because my major concern and hold back on making any recommendations for the pregnant female is that if there is any stress to the infant, any reduction in weight gain intrauterine, that, could, that leads to problems. It's not going to be a problem in a full-term eight-pound baby if the baby weighs eight pounds one ounce versus eight pounds zero ounces. But when the baby is born prematurely, a couple of ounces is the difference between life and death or life with serious disability. Or, or a normal life. So those those babies at risk are the babies we're most concerned about. but this is interesting that this broader look doesn't show an increased risk of premature delivery or increased complications. It, you know so um, so that's that's getting closer to where that might be a recommendation I can get behind.
7: We're at the end of the line for that story. and up next, We've got a fellow dope dad, a former cop that that chose to trade in his gun and badge for covering the spiciest news on Bud. He's a cannabis security consultant at CC Security Solutions and our go-to guy on law enforcement stories from an insider's perspective. Here to read us all our marijuana rights, it's Chris Eggers. What
12: you got for us today? Rico, what's up, brother? Happy Monday to to you and everybody else uh, on stage and in the room. Uh, Happy to be here. And my article today comes out of Tucson, Arizona. City of Tucson, this headline reads, City of Tucson is behind on expected marijuana revenue. And one thing I really wanted to point out in this article, we'll get to in just a second. The city of Tucson has brought in $2.4 million in marijuana revenue in this fiscal year, according to Michael Ortega, the city manager. Ortega said, quote, we had projected by the end of the year to have about $8 million. That's what was budgeted. That's what we had projected, end quote. The city gets its money from uh, state shared revenue. We're running a bit short, Ortega said. There's still about five months left, so we'll see how the allocation distribution from the state makes up for that. The money the city receives goes toward the city's public safety pension fund. Again, the money the city receives goes toward the city's Public Safety Pension Fund. That fund is around $78 million according to Ortega today. It really does help, Ortega said about the marijuana revenue. Those dollars would otherwise come from the general fund, so we're happy to be able to use those for those purposes. This gives the city more financial flexibility for other projects, Ortega said. Short article, but I thought it brought up a few interesting points about uh, taxation, where that money goes, uh, the different pots that it goes into, and, and in Tucson, it goes to the Public Safety Pension Fund. I'm curious uh, what some folks have to say about that. Uh, that really stood out to me in this article, and I'm glad to share it on this Monday morning. My name is Chris Eggers, and I'm uh, a correspondent for the State of Cannabis Hour. Thank you.
1: How much money does law enforcement need?
12: Well, I didn't understand how I mean, in the, it wasn't super clear, but he said that the, the, if Sounds like they would make up the money from the general fund to put into the public safety. I, I could, I, I must be reading that wrong.
1: That's that. I, there's a really good article uh, about uh, California's problems and what Gavin Newsom thinks about it. And law enforcement is definitely against lowering taxes because that revenue is going to them.
12: I wonder what the police unions have to say about this. Uh, exactly. Exactly. I was actually looking for other articles. I couldn't find uh, this morning similar articles about it. Um, I actually was was trying to Google to see if the uh, any of the POAs or anything like that had a had a stance on it because you know as we know uh, one of my big gripes with the, with a, a POA or a union is uh, is how politically involved they try to get. I think I think in in some ways they just need to kind of step out of the way. But I was hoping to find some sort of quote or something from somebody. Uh, about that, I found it to be pretty interesting myself.
7: hey Jason,, uh, being a conservative, maybe you and um uh, you and Gretchen can chime in on this. Like why is it that Republicans hate unions, but they love? The police unions.
12: I don't think it's necessarily people that love the police union. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say there's one one clear distinction that, that I didn't know until I was a cop, the difference between a union and an association. So I know pl- th- these are called police unions, but I think technically, at least the, for the agencies I've worked at, they're associations. And as it was explained to me, uh, the difference between a union and association is that unions can strike and associations cannot.
7: Yeah, I guess it's, it's similar to... Um, The NFL, because the NFLPA is an association. Good point. It's not technically a union.
4: A lot of politicians are, are frankly afraid of police unions, literally. Makes sense. Well, we are at time on that. Chris, thank you
2: so much for bringing that st- story to the news today. And up next, we have Mr. Christopher Smith. Mr. Christopher Christopher Smith is a communications
4: strategist,
2: and he is the publisher of the American Cannabis Report. He is also State of Cannabis' own Clark Kent. Christopher, what do you have for us today?
13: Thanks for the intro, Priscilla. Good morning, Rico, and I hope you had a fun birthday, Susan. My story today is from Benzinga, though you might think it's from Benzaro or Ben Zonkers, from Christian megachurch to cannabis, the minister who divorced the pastor's daughter and started a weed company. So it seems like I'm skipping to the final score, but the highlights are really entertaining. And though I'll mention two new brands today, I'm not pitching anything, but straight heat. And as you can probably tell, the theme for this cold winter day is baseball, baseball. Cannabis and Christianity played a doubleheader today, the headline above plus one in high times. The Bible thumpers have asked to be traded from crazy town to team cannabis. In case you, any of you out there are wearing your Christian colors on the state of cannabis game today, Jesus is going to round the bases just fine. Big Top Christianity might get a brush back, but there are a couple of players in these news stories, and they're begging for chin music, and it looks like some of it's going to blow back on Oklahoma. So when I publish this story today, I might call it From Big Top to Booftown, but for sure, it's a baseball kind of day. Here's the pitch. In 2015, Brendan Wilder was in a bit of a pickle. "'Maybe the whole jar. "'He had found his one true love, Anna, "'in in Dallas at his big-top mega church, "'and they wanted to break out "'and create their own home base together. "'But before Brendan could get to first base with Anna, "'he had to handle a curveball. "'The woman in the white dress "'who happened to be his current wife, "'who happened to be the pastor's daughter, "'Brendan was so far out in, in the outfield, "'he had taken her last name.' Big Top Mega Church had been his home team for 15 years, and he was the second string on the pastor roster himself. He described his job like this, quote, I was traveling with a group called the Power Team across America, breaking bricks and and baseball bats, and performing various feats of strength for Christ. I swear on baby Jesus swaddling clothes, it's all in the Benzinga story. Right around this time, Brendan discovered the holy smoke itself, Upon leaving Christianity in the church in 2015, Brendan discovered weed, or as he likes to put it, weed found him, because he's clever that way. Brendan spit in the dirt, hiked up his big boy pants, and went on the road with his new ball girl, Anna. They even made up a new name together, Wilder. Get it? I agree. More like a wild pitch than a home run. The first base they landed on was Bend, Oregon, where he wanted to make a living growing fresh grass. Since he was now a free agent from the church, he added mushrooms to the lineup, and the newly Wilders decided to hit a long ball and move to Oklahoma City, where they're launching a a new brand called Highest Intent. They don't have any product yet, but they have a Benzinga story, and now you know what they say. If you build it, they will come. Batting cleanup from the crazy Christian All-Stars, hitting with a higher power from both sides of the plate, and another Hall of Fame name, Craig Gross. High Times calls Mr. Gross an entrepreneur, adult pastor, and founder of the Triple X Church, a triple play in LA. The Triple X Church is not a Vin Diesel joint. It's a semi-real church whose website looks like Jesus got a job at FastCon. Company, the site has a book on its homepage which promises a new way to talk about sex, porn, and masturbation. Christ on a cracker, you can't make this shit up. And I'm not even out of the first inning. What's this got to do with weed? The porno pastor launched Christian cannabis last week. And because of the home team bats last quote, Christian cannabis, the logo of which features a dove carrying a cannabis leaf while in flight, will offer pre-rolls, cream, patch, bomb, etc. Cetera, et cetera. These products reportedly include biblical ingredients such as frankincense and myrrh. Make sure to pass the collection plate and the Christian cannabis from the left. And that's the ball game.
1: Bravo. Great show, Christopher. <laughs> yes.
13: I
7: think, I, I, think I, just, um, I just found my pro wrestling moniker, the porno pastor. <laughs> the
13: porno pastor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so many good little clips from that story.
3: Yes, that story was amazing, Christopher. And I can't wait to try this cannabis to see if when I smoke it, I can see God. You won't be afraid. You
7: will not be afraid, Jason Beck. (laughs) Let's let's, let's move on. We're uh, coming to the end of the hour. Let's move on to the next one. So she's a pot loving Ph.D. pushing for common sense cannabis policy for everyday people and outside the box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Up next, we've got Manika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning, Manika?
14: Good morning. Thank you so much, Rico. So I'm going to bring it home talking about California's Provisional Licensing Program. And there are some upcoming milestones that will impact operators and also impact the balances in the supply chain. My story today comes from MJ Biz Daily, and the headline reads, Provisional Cannabis Licenses Ending in California, Signaling Higher Barriers to Entry. And that title might lead people to think that their existing cannabis licenses are ending and that is not the case i'm going to go into that in a moment so the first few sections of this article offer background i'm going to just mention a few points for basic context but i'll be focusing mostly on what to expect in the future a quick summary of the provisional program it was created as a bridge between temporary and annual licenses allowing california licensees to operate as they ramped up to full compliance. And the main hurdle between a provisional and an annual is compliance with the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. It can take years to go through that approval process and move into an annual license. Three and four licensees in California hold provisional licenses as they, along with their, lic- their local governments, are still trying to navigate CEQA. And we're at the start of year five in California. So here's what's coming up soon. New provisional licenses won't be issued after June 30th with exceptions for social equity licensees and smaller cultivators. Those who already have a provisional license can renew for the next few years as long as they meet certain compliance benchmarks, but they will be able to continue to operate while they work towards an annual. So the bottom line is if you don't already have a provisional license, soon you will not be able to get one and will have to satisfy CEQA requirements before you can operate. And if you do have a provisional license, keep going and get yourself to an annual as soon as possible. So now moving into the main point that I wanted to cover in this article are some possible ripple effects of this change in California's cannabis industry. John Schroyer, the uh, reporter who... Uh, put the story out, offers two main predictions. The first is that the licensing runway for new retailers could get longer. Right now we have 2.1 cannabis retail shops per 100,000 residents in California. For comparison, Colorado has 14.2 per 100,000 residents. Around 70% of California cities still don't allow cannabis retail. And Governor Newsom recently announced a program to incentivize California cities to allow more retail stores, but these longer runways for licensing as new retailers have to go straight for an annual could work against that that goal. And right now there are 1,240 active retail licenses in total, of which 866 are storefront and 374 are delivery. 80% of retail licenses are provisional. So right now only 20% have transitioned to annuals. Moving to the second prediction, Schroer predicts that there will be an increase in mergers and acquisitions activity among out-of-state companies looking to enter the market quickly. Rob Hunt, a principal at Linnea Holdings, says, build is no longer as exciting as buy because of the timeline it will take to obtain annual licenses, and that I think it's going to be much, much harder for new entrants to enter the market without the ability to gain a provisional initially. I just don't know if they have the capital to weather the storm. It'll drive down the value of any provisional license and drive up the value of any existing annual. So to sum it up, soon we can expect a slowdown in new licensing, which would offer some reprieve for the license types that have experienced over-permitting in California, such as cultivation. But then the production-to-retail imbalance may not be corrected because new retailers, especially those in cities that currently have bans that they're actively working to lift will have a longer runway until they can get their stores open so the golden state is in for another wild ride in 2022 i'm curious if we have a moment here which i think we have just a few seconds what correspondents have to say about maybe some other ripple effects that we should expect this is Menica mahajan reporting for the state of cannabis news hour we
1: we don't have any any time for that i wanted to really quickly get in this this uh survey that westward did about denver and the smell of public Uh, pot smoking? Is it offensive or simply the sweet smell of success? Paul says, I always wonder if it's weed or if a skunk has been hit by a car. Marcia says, the smell on I-70 makes me so nauseous and it's not Purina either. I just can't. Graham said, I get so offended when that gross weed smell blocks out the wonderful Purina smell. Sean said, I don't care at all about marijuana smoke. I do mind cigarettes though. Shit's gross. Jericho Jericho said, I'd rather smell pot than what I actually smell living in Greeley. Jane says, I wish they'd legalize it in Nebraska. Maybe it would cover up the stench of feedlots, rotting sugar beets, and diesel. And Nate concludes, Denver is the least stanky city in the US. San Francisco literal feces, New Orleans, vomit, Vegas, cigarettes and shame, New York, that juice at the bottom of the dumpster, Portland, tear gas, DC, bacon grease, Denver, sweet integrity and good vibes. If you want to participate in this uh, survey, Uh, We don't have the link. It'll be in the newsletter. But uh, we're at time. We're over time. Sorry, folks. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch it on the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. A big thank you to Priscilla and Rico for co-producing the show with me today and all of the uh, correspondents that dig through the headlines. Thank you, Liz, for being our pinup girl. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. You're a addition to our show makes the state of cannabis news hour news you can trust and we will see you tomorrow
0: you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m pacific time for the state of cannabis news hour your daily dose
1: Say goodbye, Rico.
0: Goodbye.